Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, and welcome to the second bonus episode of History of Portugal. On this episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Professor Roger Collins. He is a British medievalist, currently an honorary fellow in history at the University of Edinburgh. Collins studied at the University of Oxford, both Queen's and Saints Cross Colleges. He then taught ancient and medieval history at the universities of Liverpool and Bristol. He then arrived at the University of Edinburgh in 1994 and joined the Institute of Advanced Studies in the Humanities before becoming an honorary fellow in the School of History, Classics, and Archaeology in 1998. He is the author of eight books on the early medieval history of the Iberian Peninsula, as well as others on the wider history of Europe in those centuries and on the history of the papacy, from St. Peter to St. Benedict XVI. Some of my personal favorites that I use for the show include such titles as Early Medieval Spain, Unity in Diversity, The Arab Conquest of Spain, Visigothic Spain, Medieval Spain, Culture, Conflict and Coexistence, and the title that I'm using for the past few episodes, Caliphs and Kings. His current book project is titled The Christian Culture of Islamic Spain, Origins, Survival and Rediscovery. So today's topic, well, one of the topics that I wanted to talk about is the term of Reconquista. It's a term that, uh, as far as I've seen, it's a bit of a polemic. It's uh, different historians have different takes on whether that term is useful or if it's damaging to our understanding of the period, uh, since it's uh, apparently used a bit later on and not necessarily during the time. And I would just like to hear your thoughts, your initial thoughts on the term Reconquista. Well, I suppose it's a term that's got a lot of kind of political baggage uh, nowadays. Uh, as far as I know, it first appears, um, you know, other terms were used before, but I think it first appears in the early 19th century, uh, and indeed it may emerge out of the context of uh, 
resistance to uh, Napoleonic conquest and, and the French occupation of, of Spain in the very beginning of the, of the 19th century. But it then kind of gets used a lot more intensively in kind of scholarly discourse in the 19th century and is then adopted very strongly um, by the Franco regime as a way of presenting an authoritative history of, of Spain in the Middle Ages in terms of this kind of recovery if you like, the expulsion of, of the non-Hispanic elements uh, and the recovery of the true Spain, uh, as it were, the united, politically united, uh, religiously united Catholic Spain, which was very much a kind of feature of, of the uh, uh, the self-presentation of, of the, the Franco government. And it's really only after that, that that it began to be questioned fairly intensively as to whether this is the best way of looking at the history of uh, medieval Spain and indeed whether the whole kind of uh, what do I call Islamic presence was them rather than uh, a different part of us in terms of, of Spanishness. Uh, again, a lot of the kind of Reconquista argument would see medieval history in terms of an intrusion from outside. If you like, there, there can be uh, good intrusions, the Visigoths uh, are, are an acceptable intrusion, uh, whereas the, the Muslims, uh, Arabs and Berbers, are a bad intrusion and never become properly Hispanic. They are, if you like, occupiers. Uh, I mean, we have a bit of the same kind of thing, um, if you like, in the uh, the way in which the history of Scotland has been looked at by nationalists. There are good invaders and bad invaders. The Romans are bad, the Anglo-Saxons are bad, whereas the uh, the Vikings are, are deemed to be settlers and, and, if you like, become us. So it, it, it's not a peculiarly Spanish problem, this one, but the Spanish uh, example, uh, Reconquista, really, if you like, uh, represents the the essence of it, that it's it's seen as a recovery of what has been lost, that those who came in and, if you like, stole uh, most of the land and suppressed the culture and the, the Christian development of the Iberian Peninsula are eventually, as a result of a succession of, of campaigns and uh, with mixed success, but ultimately resulting in the final stage, the conquest of Granada by Fernando and, and Isabel in 1492. And then, of course, it all also leads on to the subsequent expulsions of Jews and, and uh, Moriscos. So in that sense, yeah, I, I, I suspect a lot of people now would deliberately try to avoid using the term. It's useful when you're, when you're talking about in terms of, of, of the kind of, what you might say, the intellectual construct, uh, the modern idea, and trying to understand its role in 19th and 20th century historiography. But as a way of looking at the history of the medieval centuries, I think it, it's definitely, get, well, put it mildly, it gets in the way. It gives a, a false impression of what was happening and indeed makes, the, if you like, everything in terms of, of conflict between two sides, whereas a lot of, of research has been devoted uh, recently, to, to looking at the ways in which different rules op operate, um, that frontier societies can actually be much, as it were, more integrated and less confrontational, the way in which, for example, Christian mercenaries and others fight for Muslim rulers and vice versa. 
so the 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 the, the image of, of two sort of confronting societies uh two civil different antagonistic civilizations again has has been sort of largely uh and rightly challenged so i i, I personally I, I think yes reconquista needs to be sort of seen uh i mean there's no point saying well don't use the term because I say it's very interesting to to use it when you're looking at the history of uh as well the historiography of spanish medieval and indeed uh, more widely iberian medieval history um but it's it's not a as I say, a sensible way of looking at the, the the period that it's supposed to refer to. Okay, that is that is extremely interesting. I did some reading on it, and if I understood correctly, it seems like in the medieval mindset, it was seen more as a restoration. The mission was restoration and not necessarily reconquest. Could you explain what the difference would be within the medieval mindset versus the modern mindset? Well, I suppose... Uh, part of uh, you know when you when you say sort of restoration, part of this is, is of course the again it's historiography. It, it's the way in which the processes of of territorial expansion were justified, uh, even from the very sort of earliest phase. I mean, after the the Arab conquest and the emergence of sort of residual small Christian states in the north, the very earliest historiography produced in in what became the kingdom of the Asturias um, describes how one of the earliest kings Alfonso I I have to interject here that actually at that stage they weren't actually kings and didn't use the title um, that probably doesn't uh, occur until the very beginning of the the next century the ninth century but shall we say one of the earliest Asturian rulers Alfonso I is described in chronicles that are written a bit later, in fact, in, in the, the sort of later 9th, 30, 10th centuries, he's described as having created a sort of cordon sanitaire by moving the population out of basically the, the Duero, the Douro Valley, and leaving a sort of desolate zone between his new state and the Muslim rulers in Al-Andalus. Uh, and th there's, there's a lot of kind of historiographical argument again, in, in the, mainly in the 20th century, about the reality of the depopulation of the Duero Duro. And again, it's now largely accepted that this is a historical myth, that it never actually happened, that, that yes, uh, some people no doubt did flee across the mountains to refuge in the north, and indeed may have if you like, gone there and back again more than once. But the idea that somehow that this territory was depopulated and its entire population moved north to, to help kind of create the new kingdom of the Asturias, which I say indeed wasn't a kingdom at the time, is a myth probably intended to justify the subsequent reoccupation of that area uh, by uh, Alfonso's descendants, particularly in the time of Alfonso III at the very end of the ninth century, when indeed this historiography was being uh, composed. And similarly, in, in the centuries that follow, although Spanish historical writings in the, in the Middle Ages are, are, are in many cases a bit arid when compared with, with the sort of substantial and florid narratives you find in, say, English or, or French medieval historical narratives and chronicles, a lot of it is really aimed at justifying what is happening that you know sort of saying well our ruler is the if you like the the heir the inheritor 
of the the Visigothic kings, and, and indeed they, in some cases, create a sort of spurious genealogy to link uh, the line of the the kings of um, Asturias, Leon, Castile, to some of the last kings of the Visigothic period, uh, thus, if you like, making them blood descendants as well as heirs uh, in, in a legal sense, and they are really recovering what is their own. In part, if you like, this is, I, I suspect, a, a kind of a narrative to shall we say, encourage the um, uh, the conflict. But it's also, of course, to provide some kind of legal justification for why you, you might think, well, if you just conquered a bit of territory, then why do you need to, uh, to, to have a, a justification for having done so? But actually, the medieval mind, not least, uh, is extremely sort of law-minded. And in that sense, the, the presentation of arguments for why this was a recovery of the, shall we say, of, of the rights of a long dispossessed heir, uh, and indeed a succession of heirs, to what they should have, as it were, as a right inherited, is an important part of the, the self-presentation in successive historical writings, say the Asturian Chronicles, the writings of uh, Jiménez de Rada in, in the 13th century, and, and then on into the the kind of chronicle tradition that's initiated by Alfonso the Wise. So as I say, at what level this was understood or, shall we say, interested uh, the the wider population, I don't know. It, it's This is, if you like, a kind of elite process. I don't think this was a kind of motivating force in the, on the, uh, for, the, for the participants. I don't think they were kind of being inspired, sort of thinking, you know, um, we must go and, and um, as it were, slay the Paynim foe because um, we're trying to recover the rights our king had to uh, the lands that is, as it were, 20 times great-grandfather once, once owned. It's far more sort of, as it were, at a kind of intellectual and elite level and as I say, I don't think that this kind of idea of, of the recovery of, of rights uh, and, and lands and, and property lost in the very beginning of the 8th century was in itself a strong motivational force centuries later. But it, it was part of an important ideological, as it were, justification for what was happening. And it's not just the, if you like, the Asturian Leonese Castilian line similar sort of historiographical arguments develop in uh, not least in, in Aragon and, and um, Catalonia. So this isn't anything comparable like the crusading fever that swept Europe, you know, sometime afterwards where, you know, we have to go and get the infidel or expel the infidel or anything like that. So at the time, you're saying this is really a, a slow process that's happening on the ground, but only at the higher levels are justifications are being created. That's it. And, and indeed, I, th I think, you, you know, the point you make about the Crusades is an important one. I don't think th uh, that you find in Spain, certainly, if, shall we say, in, in the indigenous society, anything like that degree of, uh, uh, and in, interestingly, of course, you don't get Spanish participation in the main Crusades. And the actual sense of, of sort of a crusading process within Spain uh, is, is largely the result of um, particularly French and, and sort of Northern European contingents involving themselves at various stages in, in some of the campaigns in the, in the time of the Crusades. And, and obviously there you've got the, the benefit of the, the papal 
crusading bulls and, and, and the various promises of celestial reward or, or loss of punishment uh, that these contain. And, and quite often, of course, the, these French and, and, and as it were, non-Hispanic participants uh, were a frightful nuisance because they didn't, if you like, know the ground rules by which local society operated. Uh, they indeed did think they were there just to, to, to massacre Muslims and, and, um, and, and indeed anybody else who seemed a bit unusual uh, on the way, uh, and were not easily kind of diverted and uh, uh, made to understand the, exactly what the, the Spanish, Hispanic Christian rulers wanted um, well, indeed, in some cases, they didn't have much much choice. These people were coming, led by warlords for, from beyond the Pyrenees, with very strong ideas of what they were going to do and what they were there for, and not particularly willing to be dictated to by the Hispanic rulers. So, as in that sense, so, or, although this is a zone of almost continuous, well, with periods of, of uh, tranquility, but I mean... To a much greater degree than most other parts of, of Europe, this is an area of, of of conflict, religious in part, but I mean religious in terms of the way you could it could be presented. The, the actual crusading ideal is not really a Hispanic one at all. I mean, it, it's it's papal uh, and it becomes a sort of sideshow for the Western European crusaders who didn't want to go all the way to to the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, they could they could find a, an alternative closer to home, uh, mm -hmm. go and make a nuisance of themselves, and and then go home feeling that they'd done a good day's job, good uh, um, good day's work, or uh, mm -hmm. several months' work, uh, and probably with some loot on the side. So, uh, speaking of uh, the church, does the Catholic Church play a big role in the propagating of the idea of uh, Reconquista? Did they have a hand in this at all, or is this more of a political project on the part of the rulers? Well, of course, if you're talking about Reconquista, as it were, capital letters and, and inverted commas, whatever, uh, mm -hmm. then we're talking about the, again, the Franco period and, and the, as it were, alliance of, of church and state in, in that period. Uh, but going back to the medieval, the, obviously, as, as in with other Western European kingdoms, there was various kinds of friction between the, as it were, the ecclesiastical establishment and the the secular rulers, but by and large, shall we say, the the, the indigenous church was far more supportive of the uh, the local rulers, even to the extent of not quite ignoring the instructions that came from Rome, but um, delaying implementing them or doing so only fairly half-heartedly, uh, and various legates had to be sent at, at, at different points um, to, to try and um, encourage more um, of the approved behavior, shall we say, as seen by uh, successive popes. Obviously, there are certain periods in, in which Christian rulers inside uh, the Iberian Peninsula are looking for outside assistance, particularly in the case, for example, of, of uh, well, Sancho the Great of, of Navarre uh, and also Alfonso VI of Leon Castile, looking for external assistance and therefore being, uh, shall we say, rather more willing to adopt the kind of the the norms imposed by the, the papacy and and sort of papally approved practices, in, for example, in monasticism, uh, and hence, of course, the abolition of the, what's called the Visigothic or, or, or Mazarabic uh, liturgical rite, and also the final disappearance of the 
traditional script and, and, and other various features that, that had marked out um, the Spanish church for centuries, and also the, the importing of non-Hispanic clergy to many of the, the most important dioceses, for example, uh, Toledo, um, in the aftermath of, of Alfonso's capture of it in 1085, um, it was felt that uh, Frankish French clergy were necessary to oversee the kind of um, changes, again, often causing internal conflict in, in, in their diocese uh, with, their, with their own clergy. So it's it's a com it's a complicated picture. There used to be a, a sort of idea that somehow or other going back indeed to the Visigothic period that that Spain was was kind of cut off from the other parts of, of Western Christendom, or indeed didn't communicate that, that there was virtually no contact. I'm looking back now, really, to the pre-1000 period, which is not necessarily true. I mean, the idea that somehow it it was an entirely sort of independent and 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 deliberately as it were, obstructionist local church, ignoring the the influence of Rome. I, I think it, it's, again, this is a sort of nationalist idea uh, that got promoted. But on the other hand, I, I think you have to have to look at the, the, the questions of evidence, for example. The, we have so little surviving papal correspondence that there's virtually none of it relating to Spain is not necessarily proof that that he didn't exist it's merely that he doesn't it doesn't now exist but not that it it never existed and as I say there are other there are other sort of more positive features you can point to to, to say that actually while maintaining their own independent traditions the the uh, uh, the churches in the Iberian Peninsula before the Gregorian reforms of, of the late 11th century was not as isolated and not as kind of irredentist uh, as is sometimes made out uh, that's that's extremely interesting because I did have the impression that uh, the church institutions of uh, Northern Iberia at the time did have contact, but not necessarily a lot of contact with uh, the Church of Rome. And so whenever there was reforms, like uh, when it was being helped or even pushed by the Franks, uh, from what I had read, it seemed like uh, those were kind of just being drip fed into Northern Spain, while Andalusi uh, Christians we're barely getting any of that. Is that an accurate assessment, or not quite so? Uh, no, I think I think not. I think again, this this was the the impression that, that certainly was sort of one strongly held, and indeed in some cases sort of deliberately promoted. But individual bits of evidence, for example, you know, you've got to get, see this against a background of extraordinarily limited evidence. And therefore, so when you find small as or counter examples, then they have to be taken seriously. I mean, but there are a number of ex cases, for example, in, in the, uh, the Asturias, that the evidence would suggest that there was much, which again, if you like, is also reflected and indeed is, is partly uh, uh, dependent on kind of economic contacts. I mean, although trade from the eastern Mediterranean to, shall we say, the British Isles, comes virtually to a halt in the early 7th century, there's a lot of archaeological evidence showing continuing more localised trade links between northern Spain, western France, and, and the British Isles. And on the back of that, you know, if, if, if you've got ships toing and froing, then you've also got means of communicating in, in 
other ways I mean as it were individuals also letters and I mean just look at the the letter of Alfonso the third of the Asturias to the to the monks of Tours when he's trying to buy a, a crown that he believes that they they have which they've been given probably by um, the Frankish King Charles the Bald uh, and and they were in as it were some financial difficulty because of Viking uh, depredations which included the recent sacking of of the Basilica of Saint Martin um, and it, it it's it's a fascinating and extraordinary survival this this one letter. Uh, because he describes the way in which, as it were, communication was taking place. Envoys are going to and fro, and he is taking advantage of this to to, to send them, if you like, an offer uh, that he would happily take this crown off their hands in return for, um, as it were, suitable financial recompense. And uh, uh, he also refers to a number of, of kind of local nobles, uh, some some of the, the, the if you like, the, the local aristocracy in the Loire Valley. So, I mean, he's clearly very much more informed. And similarly, I mean, exactly the same route you find almost 200 years earlier, the extraordinary survival, again, just as a matter of chance, I mean, the, um, of the letter of Alcuin to Beatus, the, the Asturian abbot, uh, an author of the famous commentary, which many uh, illustrated uh, illuminated uh, manuscripts survive, which again refers to how Alcuin, who, who is now himself based in Tours, was delighted to in- encounter uh, somebody who'd come from the Asturias and was going to use the opportunity to send this lengthy letter back to. Um, so as I say, al- although we, we, this is just, a, if you like, a couple of, of cases, uh, and, and I couldn't cite many more, uh, but it shows that these kinds of links existed, uh, and indeed it's quite clear to see, as I say, from, from the economic evidence, how they could have persisted, not necessarily with, as it were, equal strength. I mean, clearly um, there were various factors, that, um, such as the, if you like, the period of, the, of Viking destruction on, on the sort of Western uh, Fr- French seaboard, uh, which may have made travel are far more dangerous and, and perhaps uh, r- rather less frequent. But as I say, the, the north of Spain was, was much more open. And similarly, if you look down at the, as I'm moving to the south, when you look at some of the, I mentioned the, uh, the commentaries of Beatus, and there's some extraordinarily interesting, I mean, one of them in particular has a feature of, of one of, of its um, illuminations that is clearly linked to a French, as it were, a, a tradition of, of design, and and you know the, you 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 wouldn't have expected this, but there it is. There is evidence of some kind of artistic influence. So how it came about, I, I don't know, because I mean, there's the particular scriptorium in which this one example um, I'm thinking of uh, was produced. You know. We know nothing about uh, really as, as, as to um, it, its, shall we say, uh, wider sort of cultural links. But there is the evidence of the, as it were, the influence. Uh, however, it, it came. It may have been in, in different stages. And further south, of course, down into the Christian, uh, as it were, the Christian population of, of Al Andalus. And I suspect this isn't again, you know, perhaps widely. Uh, understood but we're talking when you when you look at the christians of al-andalus certainly in the umayyad period and indeed possibly for a bit after they're probably still the majority population in that area uh, they're not um as it were a tiny and diminishing population 
it's only in somewhere like Cordoba that you may well have, have had uh, a majority Muslim population by the end of the 10th century, not more widely. So say so you've got a, a, a quite a different canvas. And at the same time, although some of the connections um, of the, the Southern Christians with their, I feel like their Northern uh, equivalents have been lost, there is much more contact with Christians in North Africa. Again, there's, there's, there's a much longer uh, survival of Christian population there, and even more so with, with Egypt and, and other parts of the, the Eastern Mediterranean. So although it, it can look like a kind of isolated and, and, and rather introverted world, there are enough little bits of evidence put against the, the backdrop of limited survival of evidence in any case to suggest that this is, is not quite as, as um as cut off uh, and, and insulated as is, has long been thought. Okay, so switching gears, uh, we can now get into the question of the legacy of the Visigoths in, in Iberian history. When I first started my show, and I covered the Visigoths in one episode. I figured, you know, this is pretty much going to be it. There'll be some legacy. But I, I was honestly surprised to see how deeply entrenched Visigothic religious practices and cultural practices and political practices carried on throughout centuries later. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that as to how deep, how long and why did it last so long? Right. I suppose you have to really start by saying that the term Visigoth, Visigothic, can be a bit of a, um, as it were, a delusion. We're talking more about a period than a people. Um, there's a danger, uh, and, and again, this was a distinction that, that was largely ignored. There's a danger of sort of seeing somehow that there's a whole sort of population of, of Goths, uh, Visigoths, as it were, wild people from uh, emerging um, out of the the area north of the Danube, and um, and the possibly, uh, according to to some of the the sort of late Roman ethnographers, beginning their their existence in in Scandinavia, and then arriving rather sort of hairy and and and, and destructive, uh, making their way ac across various parts of Western Europe, sacking Rome into Gaul, and then coming and and basically conquering Spain. That, is, as it were, is a really crude way of looking at some of the events of two or three centuries earlier, that in the period of, of the Visigothic kingdom, as we would see it, I mean, we're talking about sort of a difference of two to three hundred years. I mean, the, the majority of the population, um, indeed, perhaps the, the great majority of the population uh, will basically have been the, the Hispano-Roman population mixed in with some elements who if you like, migrated in, into the into the peninsula in in the sort of final stages of, of the uh, late Roman Empire, uh, but they're if you like creating a new identity. Again, this is this is why I kind of um, always have to put in proviso about the use of Visigoth. Uh, that's not a term that was used at the time in the Iberian Peninsula, where you find reference to Visigoths. It's either outside the, the peninsula or after 7-Eleven, that at the time, 
in the period between, as shall we say, sort of 450 and, and 711, uh, what you see is the emergence of a Gothic identity, essentially a new people. I mean, it's it's a term that has been around, but they they are very much like the um, you know the Franks in Western France, creating a new post-Roman identity. It's an ethnic identity with, as it were, actually quite shallow historical roots. I mean, it's very interesting when you look at Isidore's historical works, you know, his history of the Goths. He only goes back to really to the to the very end of the fourth century. Um, the, the, the sort of pre-crossing of the Danube period is, isn't there. Uh, and none of that clearly mattered. As I say, the new identity that's being forged in the Iberian Peninsula, really in the sixth and seventh centuries, it's a combination of, of various elements, including, if you like, others from, from coming in from the south. It gets cut off by the Arab conquest. This is why, if you like, we don't talk about um, the inhabitants of the Iberian Peninsula today as, as Goths, uh, which might, we might otherwise have done. It seems a strange idea. Uh, but in the way that we talk about the French, uh, clearly, if you like, relating to the Franks and similarly the English and like, with the Anglos, Anglo-Saxons, something similar could have happened in the Iberian Peninsula, but it didn't. Uh, and I say that's largely as a result of the, the overthrow of the kingdom and the... Uh, but in the meantime, in that period, that sort of post-Roman period in the Iberian Peninsula, uh, an awful lot was achieved. The society that emerged, but as I say, you, you need to forget the kind of um, distant roots or the, or the um, supposed distant roots. It, it's something that, if you like, is indigenous, that is being created on the spot in the peninsula from various elements. It produces a number of very important, what you might call sort of heirloom elements, such as a substantial body of ecclesiastical law, a substantial body of civil law. And these continue, these are transmitted together with uh, a large body of theological and other writings, patristic, as it were, late patristic authors like Isidore, the various bishops of Toledo who've, who've left writings, not, a, not everything that they wrote has survived, but a surprising amount of the, the literary composition of the 7th century church in, in Spain was transmitted. And some of it, particularly works of Isidore, if you like, already transmitted beyond the Visigothic kingdom in the seventh century. I mean, works of Isidore are, are appearing in, in Francia and indeed in, in Ireland and, and uh, get into uh, Northern Britain too. So the, there's, if you like, uh, um, an intellectual legacy and a legal legacy, both secular and ecclesiastical. And also, of course, you, you have in the history, um, which of course is, is not anything like as, as, as well described as a comparable Frankish history, where you've got for the sixth century, you, you've got the as well the ten books of history of Gregory of Tours, and we would sort of think, oh, if only we could have had something comparable to that, you know, some uh, really substantial narrative histories. Uh, the problem is with, uh, I suspect, with Gregory of Tours is is that he's almost too good. He was very idiosyncratic, wrote very much as it were 
according to his own prejudices, and created an image of Merovingian society that makes it seem like a, a kind of wild frontier uh, society. Uh, and indeed, for a number of, of, of other reasons, Merovingian history tended to be rather kind of um, treated as, 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 shall we say, far, far more sort of primitive and savage than, than was the case. But in the Visigothic kingdom, we lack, and indeed, if you like, we, we regret, but there are compensations, the kind of detailed who did what to whom type of, of narratives. But what we do have is, is an enormous amount of material about the, as it were, normative material about how things should be conducted, how legal and, and administrative practices should be carried out. And also we had a unified kingdom, uh, which again is not something, you, for example, you find amongst the Franks, but they tended to, um, to divide their kingdom um, in, into sort of subsections. But th there is this extraordinary fact that between the late Roman Empire and the present, the Iberian Peninsula was only ever, with a brief exception of a 60-year period, um, you know, in the, the end of the 16th century and up to, to 1640, there was no unified political authority in the Iberian Peninsula, uh, say, between, between Rome and, and the present, and indeed th that continues to be the case. So the Visigothic Kingdom was the only time in which there was, even if it extended across the Pyrenees and in, in a smaller extent in southwestern uh, Gaul, the only time when, when the, the Iberian Peninsula was unified under a single political authority, the, the Gothic kings, even if they had all sorts of problems to face and, and whatever, the, that created, if you like, a kind of, um, it wasn't something that that, that was much as it were commented on at the time, but for subsequent generations, it was something that could look back to and see, if you like, this a peninsular monarchy. I mean, they, they weren't able to recreate it um, because as we know, if you like, Leon Castile, um, Portugal, Aragon, all emerge, as it were, competing for control of different parts of the peninsula. But the, the if you like, the Gothic model the ideal of, of a united peninsula was something that it was created in the Visigothic period and was something to which later generations could sort of turn uh, and present as, as I already said, I mean, that they were using this as a justification anyway for what they were doing. But there was this sort of sense that, that it might be possible to one day bring about the restoration of, of peninsular unity. Uh, so, so there's an enormous amount of, of material, some of it practical, some of it what I call ideological ideas, some represented in text, some, if you like, like the idea of the, the unified kingdom, more represented in, in the mind than in, than in sort of treatises and literary, literary texts. So it's really this that, that gets handed on. It takes a while. I mean, it used again to be to be sort of thought that, that um, there was a kind of direct link between the the Visigothic kingdom and the Asturian kingdom. Uh, and as I said, actually, the, the Asturian kingdom per se uh, doesn't become a kingdom until the ninth century. And the whole kind of rediscovery of the Gothic roots and, and the, the, the Gothic, if like, ideology as, as a means of both of justifying and inspiring conquest 
really only emerges as in the time of Alfonso III in, in the, the late ninth century. And it's not necessarily, shall we say, a, a consistent theme thereafter. There are various points at which the, if you like, the, the Gothic legacy is, as it were, brought out and, and, and polished and, and shown off other periods in, in which it matters rather less. Though at the practical level, in terms of the the church, I mean, obviously the the liturgy continues. I mean that that uh, and 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 as does the law, though of course that starts to to um, as it were be altered for, for practical reasons with the the fueras and the um, as well the introduction of uh, more kind of localized lawmaking uh, to deal with, with particular local conditions, but the the actual body of of the uh, the Fuero Huzgo, or Lex Visigothorum, just as, as a concept of, of a great sort of national body of law, is a very powerful one, even though, as I say, it, its practical application probably varied a lot, uh, and, and much of it was probably entirely irrelevant, as indeed with some of the uh, liturgical material that continued to be. Uh, I mean, for example, there's a um, a manuscript from late 10th, 11th century Albelda in the, the Rioja, which is includes copying uh, liturgical texts, includes a service for the reconciliation of Donatists. There were never any Donatists in, in the Iberian Peninsula at all. The Donatists are a form of North African schismatic uh, who disappeared in the 6th century. But this particular, as it were, text obviously it was introduced into the Visigothic kingdom by uh, migrating clerics from North Africa, which there were many, and then got, if you like, uh, included in the service books and continued to be copied, as a right up to the um, 10th or 11th centuries, even though anybody who looked at it would say, well, who are the Donatists? Uh, when are we ever likely to encounter one of them? But, you know, the important thing was the tradition you you carried on because this is what you would inherited and which if you like gave you your own sense of particular identity and and worth so i th i think this is this is i mean say the you know the the actual sort of um the gothic myth um indeed it is largely myth also it needs to be seen alongside the the um the rather sort of diverse practical legacy of um, as a law and ecclesiastical law too, uh, which again, the utility of some of this ecclesiastical, you know, the councils, I mean, yes, it may be that something would crop up and therefore you would need to kind of look at the, and the councils and you say, ah, yes, you know, the council of Ankara ruled that. But a lot of it would never have been needed in a practical way, but you had it. This, this was, if you like, uh, a great sort of ongoing tradition, a body of of text to which you could refer and which again gave you that sort of sense of that you were going in the right direction. An impression that I got was that as far as the Gothic religious legacy is that it, it endured or was seen as more important in Al-Andalus. Is is that is that correct that they that they clung on to that Visigothic tradition a bit more as a sense of preserving their identity, and in the north it, the changes came a little bit quicker. Is that an accurate view? Um, 
I think probably not in the sense that, again, this is this is an image that I think was sort of uh, widely presented. I mean, partly we don't know very, very much about, as it were, Christian society in Al-Andalus in terms of, if you like, the, the kind of intellectual activities, the, uh, uh, the, the, the may or may not be a small survival of, of liturgical texts from the South. There's an argument about certain manuscripts in, in Toledo with the, the two liturgical traditions coinciding, one of which, it's argued, may represent a survival of, of, of practices in the South. Um, but again, that's, that is merely a, a rationalization of the existence of, of, of the two versions. So we don't know a lot about that, but there are some things we do know about. For example, the survival of some of the, of the kind of manuscripts, if not themselves, but copies made from them, but which um, those who studied them from paleographic and, and, and textual points of view have led them to suggest that these are copies of manuscripts that originated in the South. Uh, say very few of them actually themselves, there are one or two that, that probably were, but by and large it's, it's more that they were the, the kind of originals that, that were subsequently copied, but have distinctive features that have so we 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 do know something about the if you like the, the intellectual culture of Andalusian Christianity, and yes, not surprisingly, it it is rooted in in what had gone before in in the Gothic period, uh, but so is the, the most of the Christian practices in the north, until you 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 get. I mean, you know, change starts obviously with the, the Frankish presence in in the very sort of northern edges of Catalonia and the introduction of of, of um, Caroline script, so that the the old so-called again Visigothic or Mozarabic script is gradually replaced, moving from from east to west, and so in in, in that sense, ultimately uh, Portugal, as as the furthest removed, may re retain some of the 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 kind of textual elements and, and uh, liturgical elements longer than other parts. And there are various forces we described before, the, uh, as it were, um, investiture controversy or the, the Gregorian uh, reforms of the late 11th century and, and the kind of pressure put on, on the uh, peninsular rulers to uh, conform to, to, to Roman norms and practices. But I don't think really that there's a reason to, I mean, it could be suggested, of course, that uh, the Christians in the South were more open to new influences from outside, in, from, shall we say, other Christian societies under Islamic rule. I mean, for example, there do seem to be, in just liturgical terms, there seem to be some um, borrowings from, from the, the Coptic church. Uh, and these probably, therefore, if you like, didn't make their way all the way through up into the north. So the, there would have been gradual difference, but it's not necessarily because the, um, uh, if you like, Christianity in, in Al-Andalus was, was fossilized or, 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 or unreceptive. Uh, it probably was being subjected to to influences from outside, as was the case in the, the you know the Christian communities in the north as, as well. So it, it's it's a much more sort of mobile and and, and complex picture. And I say the idea somehow that that the um, the Mazarabs were somehow sort of isolated uh, and a bit backward um, is is probably to be resisted. 
I think that perhaps we can get to some listener questions at this point, so we can uh, keep things within our time frame. Okay, so I have the first question here. What would be the most surprising single or little-known event that impacted or turned the tide, quote-unquote, during the time period in discussion? So I would say between 711 and, and 976, up until the death of Al-Hakam II. Is there a little-known event or something that uh, sticks out to you that you would say this made a huge difference, it turned the tide in some kind of way? A tricky question, but um, I wonder, I mean, just looking at, shall we say, the human element, uh, this is a bit like, if I can jump ahead with, with a, a parallel to what I'm about to describe, you know, if you go to Avila, not to the cathedral, but uh, you know, the, the, the church there, in which the tomb of the only son of Isabella of Castile and, and Fernando of Aragon, uh, you know, who died at the age of 19 in 1497. And he, his, he was the Infanta Juan. Uh, and you kind of look at, at, at that tomb and you think, well, if he'd survived, if he, if he had um, gone on, uh, and indeed he, he, he had just married and uh, indeed a, a child was about to be born, but who unfortunately died, in infancy, but if he had if he had survived and had reigned, shall we say, for the next 20, 30 years longer, the Habsburg connection might never have happened. That um, Spain would not have been drawn into all of those wars in Italy and Central Europe. All of that, as it were, loot or the resources uh, removed from Central and Southern America to Spain, uh, but which then got funneled in, into maintaining the, shall we say, the Habsburg uh, uh, sort of enterprises would not have gone in that direction. Heaven knows what could have happened. As I say, a, a Spain that was not a Habsburg Spain uh, might have been a very different place. So I, I think using that, if you like, as, as a kind of parallel, my answer to the question would be that possibly the, the most surprising uh, or momentous outcome of a, what I call a human accident uh, was indeed at the very end of the period you just outlined. The fact that Al-Hakam II died, leaving only two sons, both of whom were minors. And for the first time in the entire history of the Umayyad dynasty in uh, the Iberian Peninsula, a ruler as it were, succeeds without being able to exercise power in person. And the result is the, effectively the dictatorship of Al-Mansur, which in, as it were, immediate military terms, of course, is, is spectacularly uh, dramatic. And, and the campaigns that he launches, I mean, really represent the, the, the most successful and, and dramatic the military ventures from of the rulers of, of Al-Andalus, certainly since the uh, probably the late eighth century, but the con consequences for the kind of um, political stability of the the caliphate of the successors of Al-Mansur and their attempt basically to to uh, shall we say replace the uh, the Umayyad dynasty or the su suggestion that this is what uh, uh, you know the second of them was was actually going to do uh, leads to to the most extraordinary collapse of this enormously powerful, very wealthy, apparently stable political entity, this, this, as well, the, the, uh, the caliphate and the, the uh, society and, and culture that, that sustained it, uh, and, and the fragmentation of Al-Andalus into you know, something like 40 plus sort of 
micro parts in the course of the the 11th century. So in that sense, uh, and I mean, if you look back at the you know the history of the the, the, the dynasty, they tended to produce as did most of the um, as it were the Islamic dynasties. They tended to produce lots of heirs, and in virtually every case. Not only there were, shall we say, surplus and, and in some cases problems arising from having too many heirs, but but they were all sufficiently, as it were, mature to be able to exercise rule from, from the moment that they succeeded by whatever means their predecessor. And this is the one point at which you have this minority rule. And as I say, it's hard to dissociate that from the ensuing sort of political equilibrium and the, and the collapse of the uh, you know, following civil war and the collapse of the and, and disappearance of the caliphate, something you, you would not have prophesied uh, in 1976. Absolutely. That, that is a, a rather dramatic turn of events. We're about to jump into that in, on the on the show. I'm very excited to cover Al-Mansur because he's a, he's a fascinating character from everything that I've read and uh, terribly ambitious, to say the least. When did the Portuguese national identity first begin to manifest itself? You know, because I think it's a, it's an interesting question because I mean it, it's one that, if you like, is relevant more broadly across the whole of, of Western Europe. When does national identity, as opposed to political affiliation, really develop? Uh, I mean, this has been studied particularly in the case of England, where you see the beginnings, in, you know, in the 13th century, when because um, although, if you like, in the in the Anglo-Saxon period, there the, the, there was something of a, of a of a unified kingdom for a very short period, uh, but for for uh, in the in the ensuing Norman Anglo uh, uh, Norman and Angevin periods, um, you know, the rulers had extensive continental possessions and and didn't see themselves. I mean, their title was, if you like. King of England or King of the, of the uh, the English, but but this was merely one of their titles, and and their their concerns were often much more strongly uh, directed to some of their possessions in, in 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 what we would later call France. But it's only in the 13th century you 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 start to get the sort of sense in the sources that there is a shall we say a distinctive English aristocracy emerging whose main concerns, they may still have uh, property and possessions elsewhere, but whose main concern is within the English kingdom and who are criticizing the monarchs for having foreign favorites and, and, and if you like, having uh, interests uh, that, that run counter to those of the, the English kingdom. And, and so you, you, you can sort of trace this as it, as it develops in, in the, the centuries that follow. And I think the same, you know, the same is true in France. So I think in the Iberian Peninsula, we probably must be aware of assuming that the existence of a political entity, uh, be it the county and then the kingdom of Portugal or the kingdom of Leon, Aragon and so on, uh, necessarily re represents a sense of a national identity. The existence, I mean, a successful monarchy of, of these kinds can actually help generate a national identity but it's not the product of a national identity. So I would say in the case of Portugal, I, know, I, I don't know how much work has been done on this, but, but that a, a real Portuguese identity is going to be somewhere further down the line than the emergence of the Kingdom of Portugal. You know, when you look at the, the, the early history of, of the Kingdom of Portugal, it, it, it's a very artificial construct. 
you know, why on earth does it not include Galicia? If you like, if in, in linguistic cultural terms, uh, the two go together. Um, you know, the, the county of Porto is, is actually a, a sort of southern extension of, of, of Galicia. Uh, and the, indeed, the same uh, aristocratic families are responsible, if you like, for, for, the, for the development of both. But as a result of, of the uh, lack of a, success, of a male successor to Alfonso VI, the you know, arrangement, as you, as you know, takes place of the creation of, a, of a, as it were, a Portuguese, well, it's, it's not yet a kingdom, but it, it, it's something for Alfonso's uh, second daughter, while his uh, surviving uh, daughter is, 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 as it were, linking with, with uh, uh, Alfonso of, of, um, of Aragon. Um, but out of that, that the, the, then does emerge over time, uh, that the, the very strong distinctive sense that the, if you like, the, what was a, a initially an, an artificial construct, uh, and like all of the other peninsular monarchies, you know, it kind of extends south by conquest as a result of, of you know, being hedged in by uh, uh, powerful neighbours, but with opportunities for expansion against the uh, uh, the Muslim powers in the south. Out of that emerges a very strong national identity, which is, is certainly uh, apparent in the in the 14th century. But as I say, it'd be interesting just to sort of, as I say, it may have been done, it's not, it's not something I, I know much about, but um, the, the process, I'm sure, could be traced somewhere between, as I say, the creation of the kingdom um, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the famous battle that um, represents the, you know, the, if you like, the, the significant triumph of, of uh, Portugal over Castile. So um, I, I think this is, this is a, it's an interesting one to, to pursue. You mentioned to me earlier that you are working on a new book. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how soon can we expect to get it? Don't start saving your money yet, but um, the book is to be entitled, intended to be, if you like, slightly uh, controversial, The Christian Culture of Islamic Spain. And I'm really taking up a point uh, I made in, in our discussions that I want to explore the, shall we say, uh, what I think is the reality of a much stronger and long lasting Christian presence in Al-Andalus, which may well mean uh, I say that, it, that the Christians provided the majority population possibly into um, the Almoravid and even Almohad periods. And in part by, by, if you like, looking at the evidence, but in also looking at comparable societies. I mean, particularly, for example, Egypt, where the, the, it's much better documented, the survival of, of the, the Copts. People have, have rather jumped to conclusions about, based on you know, largely sort of casual rem, uh, statements in, for example, Alvar's famous remark about the, uh, as it were, the, the young um, effectively using Arabic rather than Latin, and, and um, you know, it's 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 somehow um, there's a danger. Historians faced with with very limited evidence uh, can latch on to, to small pieces uh, and and cling on for for dear life and overinterpret them. Uh, and so it, it's been, for example, with with that uh, as I say, rather rhetorical statement. Uh, and interestingly, there is a virtually identical remark made uh, in a Coptic source um, of virtually the same period, 
that if you like the 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 young christians are all speaking and, and reading arabic but the, as as we know the coptic church uh, survives very effectively right through to the to the present so the interpretation of this as a, as a sign that, that Christianity was on its last legs and that the, uh, the intellectual culture of, of um, uh, the, the Christians in Al-Andalus was about to disappear, I say, uh, never, never seemed very convincing to, to, to me. And I say there is actually plenty of evidence, not least in the form of inscriptions and Latin uh, inscriptions going through into the 12th century, that even Latin, if you like, continues in a, in a sort of privileged position, then probably most of the population would be speaking Arabic. But what I wanted to do was get away from ideas that somehow the Christians of Al-Andalus were not themselves, shall we say, very committed. They didn't understand much about their faith. They they quickly gave it up. You know, the, the, the if you like, the pressures or, or inducements of conversion were... were, were so I, I, I'm starting by looking at the nature of, of the Christian culture of the Visigothic kingdom to say, well, no, this is what we, they inherited. Then looking at the various arguments about the, as I say, the survival, the intellectual culture, reasons why Christianity uh, eventually does decline in a, a diminishing Al-Andalus. And this also, of course, involves the survival in the north both of Andalusi Christians who, who, if you like, get stranded as, as the political frontier moves south, but also others who, who take refuge in the north until you, you, you end up really just with the, the Mazarabs of Toledo in, in the, the later Middle Ages. And from that, I want to move on to look at the rediscovery of the evidence from the 16th century onwards as the Spanish scholars, you know, starting with um, Ambrosio de Morales, recover the history and some of the literary products of the uh, Christian communities of Al-Andalus and then follow that through. I mean, this is going to have to be fairly uh, rapid because I'm afraid the publishers won't let me have more than 120,000 words. Bring it through as far as I can to the present. No, it's, it's an endlessly fascinating uh, topic and there's a lot to be discovered and a lot more work to be done from, from everything that I can tell. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that you are on it. Uh, uh, like I said before, I do love your work. You're one of my principal sources thus far for my show. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, any book that I can get of yours, I, I typically do. So I just want to thank you for, for, for all the work you've done over the years because it's 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 good stuff. Oh, thank you. I, yeah, I got it. I got into it quite by accident when when I was starting research in this was in Oxford back in 1971. My supervisor peter brown wanted me to to work on enodius of bevere and the kind of aristocracy of of uh, fifth century italy and i started that and it was so dull i'm afraid enodius who who, who um he, he was um, bishop of bevere in, in the ostrogothic period uh wrote this most appallingly kind of florid uh and almost incomprehensible latin and with, with very little real content. I mean, there are some some of his works are interesting, but uh, anyway, I, as I say, I, I wilted, and by the end of the first term, I, I wanted out of of. Uh, and and indeed, Peter, for the two succeeding years, uh, he got somebody else to, to work on the same topic. The second year, 
the same with the same result i have to say the, the person i'm afraid i don't even remember their name they they abandoned the, and left oxford and and if you like but never heard of again uh in the third year um somebody else started and well uh, she and i got married and we're still together 51 years later but uh um as I say, there was no success but anyway in the meantime as they were having decided that this particular topic wasn't for me i started looking around at the end of this first term and i read an article of uh, a thompson on the uh, the conversion of the goths from arianism to catholicism and i thought hmm this is interesting but i think it's wrong i'll give myself a couple of weeks just to sort of find out why i think it's wrong uh, and look into this and anyway i never stopped so that kind of, uh, by the end of that time, I, I, I was really hooked. I went to Spain for the first time and loved it. And then, um, uh, as I say, remained going that way ever since. Uh, but it was purely accidental. And you found your wife uh, out of it, which is, <laughs> which is incredible. Oh, well, absolutely. Yeah, what more could you ask for? <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 